0: Well, if you're new with us today, uh, we are in one of the most interesting books in the entire Bible, and uh, also one of the most challenging books in the entire Bible. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes, one of the Old Testament wisdom literature books, that offers a sometimes cynical, not sometimes, all the time, cynical perspective on life, uh, yet many, I think, uh, crucial and life-altering lessons that come from this book. And that was one of the reasons why I was convinced of the need to preach this book as I studied it with a group of pastors back in the fall. Uh, If you were here at the beginning of this series, you already heard me say this. I walked away uh, from that time going, I'll never preach the book of Ecclesiastes in in church. And uh, as time went on, the lessons that we pulled from this book just stuck with me and, and seemed to become more and more important as I went about my life. And I thought, there is some really important truths uh, in this portion of God's Word that we need to look at together. And so that's what prompted me to go forward with this series. We are in chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 8 all the way through the end of that chapter. And then I'm going to read chapter 6, 1 through 10. And we'll just, it'll be one uh, continuous reading. So let's look together. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province... Don't be astonished at the situation, because one official protects another official, and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner? Except to gaze at them with his eyes. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. There is a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for, for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good and all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. Furthermore, Everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Chapter 6. Here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God does not allow him to enjoy them. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. A man may father a hundred children and live many years. No matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For he comes in futility and goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness." Though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. All of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage does, then does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who knows how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than wandering desire. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Whatever exists was given its name long ago, and it is known what mankind is. But he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life? In the few days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow, who can tell anyone What will happen after him under the sun? I warned you that it was a bit cynical. (laughs) This is probably one of the few times that you'll hear money talked about in church that is not a sermon on giving. In fact, this this is a sermon about the pitfalls and the dangers of pursuing riches. I want to emphasize that money is not bad. Of course, we know that to be true. Money makes a lot of good things possible. You could almost say it's necessary for survival. Certainly in our society, you would have a hard time getting by without at least some money. But there are some dangers. Our author, the author of Ecclesiastes, has experienced those. He was a very, very wealthy man. And he's lived through some of the challenges that can come with that. So he offers a blunt perspective on money. I don't think you'll find a more honest take on the pitfalls of wealth than what you see here in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. It's just brutally honest. He, he, he just, he's gone down this road. He, he knows what it is to have everything that man desires. And he says, there are some troubles that come with that. And here's what they are. So let's look at them together. If you have your handout You'll see on the handout, we're going to talk about some problems with money. The first one is this, that money can lead to oppression. He says back in verse 8 of chapter 5, If you see the oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at that situation. Because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. Then he says, the profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. Corruption and oppression motivated by greed and riches and wealth and material things is nothing new and nothing abnormal. It has existed all throughout human history. One of the problems with money is that it can lead to oppression. That does not mean that it leads to oppression every time it is present, But certainly it's nothing new to see oppression. So Ecclesiastes says, don't be astonished. This happens all the time. you got officials, they protect one another. And and when they can't protect themselves, there's usually somebody higher up that can protect them. The king is served by the field. That that means he reaps the benefits from everyone else's labor. He receives good things on the backs of hardworking people. This is nothing new. Certainly, the oppression caused by wealth and power is, I think, pretty well documented in our society today. We talk about that a lot. Let me offer you just a little bit, uh, just a little piece of the perspective that I gained recently. When we were on our mission trip in Juarez, of course, the first thing you notice when you go to Juarez, because Juarez is a border city, uh, it sits literally uh, just across the, a small, well, the Rio Grande, which is just a, a very, there's nothing grand about it. It's, it's very small in that part. And uh, so you look right across the Rio Grande in, from El Paso, Texas, and you see Juarez, Mexico. The first thing you notice is there is a stark contrast in the distribution of wealth, in one moment, you're in America. And, you know, El Paso's. it's, it's not a luxurious town, but it's an American town. It's, it's got plenty of luxury. It's got plenty of good things. It's clean. It's, it's, it's a place that, that, you know, is relatively safe. It's a place where you can buy material things, anything that you desire. And you look across the border, and you see absolute poverty, Juarez is a city very unlike any city that we have in America. In fact, somebody on the trip in Mexico uh, said, what would you compare this to in the U.S.? I said, there's nothing that you can compare this to in the U.S. But one of the things that Juarez is known for is it's one of the largest manufacturing cities in the Western Hemisphere. It's a huge manufacturing town. Hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs there. And the reason is, is because of its proximity to the U.S. It's easy to cheaply manufacture goods in Mexico, bring them across the border, and distribute them for sale in the U.S. And so we were asking uh, some of the guys uh, that we were working with there, what does somebody make working in these factories in Juarez? And the answer was about $5 a day. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, I assume everything is cheaper in Mexico. It is true, some things are cheaper in Mexico. Many things are the same price in Mexico. To go to Wendy's and get a hamburger combo, about 7 or $8. So you could literally work all day in a manufacturing job and not have enough money to stop at Wendy's on your way home. $5 a day. One, uh, I have a friend there that was uh, with us throughout the week. Uh, I've known for almost 20 years now. And uh, he's he has a four-year degree. Uh, he was working uh, a decent job. And he was making about $160 a week. And he lost his job. $160 a week was considered a decent job. That's why families are struggling to survive. That's why families find it appealing to do things that are illegal to go about making money uh, other than going and working a job that's going to pay $5 a day. That's why, that's why oftentimes if dad goes to work, any able-bodied teenagers or sometimes even his spouse go with him. If you can get four or five people in the same family working at one of those jobs, you're not making $5 a day, you're making $20, $25 a day now. What is the result of that? Cheaply manufactured products that come to the US that you and I go and purchase and say, look what a good deal I've gotten. Now, I'm not here to lay guilt on anybody. I do it all the time. I don't, I don't know. I'm not even here to pr- provide answers. I don't even know what the answers are. I don't know what the solution to that is. Uh, but the point being made here is that money can lead to oppression, the powerful want to keep as much of the profit as they can. And the powerful, even in this case being us, want to purchase products as cheaply as we can. It's the way of the world. It's the way things exist. It's how things happen. Money can lead to oppression. It's one of the problems with money. The Next one, loving money is futile. Feudal is an important word in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've talked about this almost every week. Feudal feudal in the book of Ecclesiastes has the connotation of things that can't ultimately satisfy. Things that may have some enjoyment for a season, but in the end, they leave you unsatisfied. Unsatisfied. He sometimes says, like, grasping at the wind or or grasping at smoke, trying to hold on to something that you just can't get a hold of. That's what futile is. Loving money is futile. Verse 10 of chapter 5 says, The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. I'm sure you've heard this quote before, John D. Rockefeller, who is considered, to, even still today, to be the wealthiest man in modern history relative to his time. The wealthiest man in modern history was supposedly once asked, how much money is enough? His answer was, just a little more. That is the trap, that is the futility of all who love money. The one who loves silver never satisfied with it. What a cruel irony. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. The author knew this full well. He went down that road. One of the wealthiest men of his time. Never enough. You can never get enough money. You can never get enough silver. You can love wealth, but it'll never satisfy you. That's unbelievable. What's so crazy about that is deep down, I think we all know that to be true, or at least at some point in our lives come to realize that that's true. And yet it does not stop us from pursuing more money one bit, does it? I think we all fall into this trap that if we just had a little more money, we'd be satisfied. If we just made a little bit more money at our jobs, we'd we'd be happy and we'd be content. Just a little more and it never ends. You're always reaching for just a little more. You need to know that about money. You need to know that loving it is one of the most futile things that human beings do. You've got to understand that. It's not going to satisfy you. I'm not saying you don't need it. I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue making a good income. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm simply saying what Ecclesiastes reminds us here is that loving money is futile. It can't satisfy you. Next thing Ecclesiastes says is that wealth brings uninvited friends. Friends, of course, in quotation marks here. Listen to what this man who, who attained incredible wealth is saying. He says in verse 11, When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? That's, a nice, that's just a nice way of saying the more money I had, the more leeches I had attaching themselves to me. Everybody wants to be around the one with the wealth and the riches. Everybody wants to benefit from someone else's wealth. Everybody wants to to receive the benefits of having a rich friend. And so when good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. And the rich man just steps back and he says, this is what I get. This is what I gain for all of my success. I have these people multiplying around me. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? He's not satisfied. He just stands back and watches it happen. One of my top five favorite movies of all time is Secondhand Lions. Who's seen Secondhand Lions? Maybe not, maybe half of us. I think we should have a church movie night. Secondhand Lions is, is one of my favorite movies, and it tells this incredible story, because uh, it tells, tells this great story about these two older men who, I don't, man, there's so many things I can't believe you people haven't seen this movie. There's so many things I have to tell you now. Like We're going to be here a little bit longer because of this. It's this movie about these two older guys who supposedly have incredible wealth, but they live in this old dilapidated farmhouse in Texas. And the relatives and the local traveling salesmen, and everybody's trying to get in on these guys' wealth. And so one of the the two men who played by uh, Michael Caine and Robert Duvall, two great actors, Um, one of their nieces, I think it is, brings her like, he's probably like 10, 11-year-old son, and she drops him off to live with them for the summer hoping that he will find a way to get into their wealth. She's a very selfish woman. She cares nothing for her son. Um, she just wants to get at these men's wealth. And they're constantly pushing everybody away. They don't, they're don't. they grumpy old men. They don't want anybody near them. Um, they've supposedly lived this wild and crazy life where they've done all these things around the world. Nobody knows how they got this money. There are all these rumors uh, and or, or whether or not they even have it. And what these two old men discover is that this young boy drives the other gold-digging relatives crazy. And so at first, they're very resistant to him. They don't want him there. They mistreat him. They're, they're not kind to him. And then they realize the effect that he has on the other relatives who are trying to get their wealth. And they kind of adopt him and take him in. And it turns into this incredible story where he gets to learn all about the adventures that they had. And it's just, a, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, I really do encourage you to watch it because it's a lot of fun. But the point is, is that wealth brings uninvited friends. It it attracts people who don't want you for who you are. They want you for what you have and what you can do for them. These are some of the problems with money. Again, we're not looking for solutions. I'm not offering solutions. I'm just, I'm telling you what, what Ecclesiastes teaches us, what this man has learned from his incredible wealth. The next one, wealth robs you of sleep. Wealth robs you of sleep. Verse 12, the sleep of the worker is sweet. Think about that for a second. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. There is again, this is very proverbial, okay? Proverbial wisdom isn't something that is a hard and fast truth all the time. Workers don't always sleep soundly, right? There are plenty of things that can keep the workers awake, but what he's, he's, he's presenting a general truth. He, he's, he's getting this idea out there that you can be satisfied with little, that there's perhaps a a, a dignity to hard work that allows you to have good rest, whereas the abundance of the rich keeps him up all night. Worrying about his wealth and worrying about the projects that he has going on, worrying about his reputation and all of these things combining to keep him up. Wealth can rob you of sleep. We can see why. Look at all the problems that money brings. More money, more problems. Let's go to the next one. Hoarding riches brings harm. Hoarding riches brings harm. He says this in verse 13. There's a sickening tragedy. It's a sickening tragedy. And we see, that, we see that type of reaction to so many things in the book of Ecclesiastes. But here, in regards to money, the sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun is that wealth kept by its owner to his harm. You can have a lot of money and keep it so much to yourself that it actually harms you. Hoarding riches brings harm. Charles Dickens. In his story, A Christmas Carol, tells the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. We're all familiar, I think, most of us, maybe some of us, not uh, familiar with Ebenezer Scrooge, who was a miserable old miser, didn't want to share even a penny of his wealth. This is how he's described in in Dickens' novel. He says the cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin his Thin lips blew and spoke at sh- out shrewdly in his grating voice. The physical effects of hoarding wealth on Ebenezer Scrooge, who of course is a fictional character, but illustrates for us the danger of greed that hoards riches. It's a sickening tragedy, Ecclesiastes tells us. Wealth kept by its owner to his harm. No one likes a greedy, stingy miser like Scrooge. Hoarding riches brings misery and the disdain of the people around you. It's one of the problems with money. On the other hand, the next thing that we learn is that squandering riches brings humiliation. Try too hard to keep it, it brings harm. You're too reckless in spending it, it brings humiliation. He says in verse 14, that wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. Wealth lost in a bad venture brings humiliation. Here's a story of a man who had lots of wealth, he, he, he spent it foolishly, he did not use it wisely, and now he has a son with nothing to give him. That's humiliation. Mike Tyson, as a fighter, made over $300 million in his boxing career. That's an incredible amount of money, especially 20 years ago. $300 million. By 2003, he was $23 million in debt and filed for bankruptcy. Bankruptcy. It was the most humiliating decade of his life that followed. He entered into rehab. He, he had to do whatever he could to make money. He even starred in some silly movies. Uh, he wrote a book trying to make some money. He made some public appearances. Here is a guy who once was on top of the fighting world. Iron Mike Tyson, the baddest man on earth. $300 million. And he was $23 in the end that's humiliating squandering riches brings humiliation how did he spend it mansions cars and prostitutes he spent he spent a lot of time in rehab he spent a lot of time trying to get his money right and learning how to grow up and be a man and thankfully he did I mean I don't know He's anybody's role model today, (laughs) but he's doing a lot better than he was in 2003. But it took a decade of humiliation and a decade of trying to get his life back together. Squandering riches brings humiliation. Next, you can't take it with you. That's one of the bigger problems with money, isn't it? That you can't take it with you. Verse 15 of chapter 5 says, As he came from his mother's womb... So he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the wind? What is more, he eats in darkness all his days, with much frustration, sickness, and anger. You wonder if he's speaking of himself. At the end where he says he eats, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. Certainly it's possible considering the state that we see of this man who once had it all. Or who knew what it was to have it all. A sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. And that is the torture of the rich. They've spent their whole life, they've they've worked with everything they had to build wealth, to acquire possessions, to have power. And as they get closer and closer to their last breath on earth, they realize none of this is going with me. I'm not taking any of it. I'm gonna leave this world just like I came into it, naked and with nothing in my hands. I think of the ancient Egyptians who made it their practice. You know, We're very familiar, I think, with some of the pharaohs and the kings of Egypt who, who had these huge tombs full of their wealth. But even the common people, it was just part of their culture that even the common people were buried with possessions. They were buried with things, supposing that they could use them in the afterlife, supposing that they could use them to, to um, make it into paradise, supposing that they could use them to sustain them. Of course, Over time, I think that became obviously futile to them as as people would break into those tombs and the goods were still there. Obviously, nobody was using them now. They They were just being wasted and that is the reality that all of us must face. When we breathe our final breath here on earth, everything that belonged to us doesn't belong to us anymore. You take nothing with you. Cannot buy your way into heaven. There is nothing that you have here on earth that will help you after you die. They used to, the Egyptians would they would make these little idols, these little people, these statues, and those were supposed to be their servants in the afterlife. They would take those with them into the tombs and into the graves so that some would conserve them in the afterlife. That's futile. And everything you have and everything you possess today will no longer be yours at death's door. That's important to know. It's frustrating. It's, it might even be discouraging to us, but boy, we need to know that. That's what's so good about this chapter. That's what's so good about this book is he just speaks sometimes of harsh realities that you need to know. And where does he go with all of this? The next thing on the handout is this. Therefore, enjoy what God has given you. Verse 18. After all of that, after all of the problems that he sees, that the pursuit of riches or the love of money or the abundance of material possessions might bring, this is his conclusion. Verse 18. Here's what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good. In all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life, God has given him because that is his reward. So, so for the first part of this passage, this is bad, this is futile, this is a sickening tragedy, but here is what is good. Enjoy what God has given you. Eat, drink, and experience good in all of your labor because that is your reward. Furthermore, verse 19, Everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God, for he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. There are translation issues all throughout the book of ecclesiastes and i, I don't dwell on those a lot up here um, but i try to work through them in my study there's a lot of difficulty in taking the original language and putting it into the english that you and i understand and so sometimes there's things that you're like i'm just not sure is he sa- what is exactly is he saying here the, there's a couple of possibilities here one is just the straightforward understanding of this. Everyone to whom God has given riches, he has also allowed them to enjoy them. That seems to contradict everything that he's saying. He seems to be saying throughout the rest of this chapter that most of the time, people who have riches don't even have the ability to enjoy them. I think one of the, one of the possibilities that I tend to lean towards is that he's saying God has made it possible so that everyone has the opportunity, the option to enjoy what they have been given. Whether that's the intended meaning here or not, that is certainly true. You have a choice. You have the option to either be miserable in the pursuit of more or to take, take a step back and be grateful for what you already have. That's the better way. That is the better way. That is what is good. To eat, drink, and experience good in your labor. Take joy in what you have. Take joy in what you do. Enjoy your job. Enjoy it. Just enjoy it. What's stopping you from enjoying it? You may have a long list of things. What if you could just push all of those aside and enjoy it? What if you could just get up in the morning and say, you know what? This is kind of good. I make a lot more than $5 a day. I guarantee you, everybody in here who works makes a lot more than $5 a day. Maybe that helps you appreciate your job. Enjoy what you do. Enjoy what you have. Be glad that you are alive. Be glad that you have friends, that you have family, that you have material things. I know for a fact, everybody in here has at least one good outfit. (laughs) At least one. That's a good thing, not even to speak of how unbelievably wealthy we all are in comparison to almost all humans throughout human history. We've got it good, guys. Enjoy it. Be happy with that. Enjoy what God has given you. You don't have to be rich to be happy. It might be harder to be happy if you're rich. Are you picking that up from what we're seeing here? It might be easier to be happy with what you have right now than if you were to get what you hope to have. Think about that. I think we all have a tendency to look back and and remember the good old days at some time. Well, someday you're gonna look back and these were the good old days. days Someday you're not gonna be as healthy as you are now. You might not be as wealthy as you are now. You, You won't have the people around you that you have around you now. Enjoy it. Be grateful for what God has given you. Eat, drink, and experience good in your labor. Take some time this week. And gather some people around you that you appreciate and that you enjoy. And just have a good meal together. I'm not saying an expensive meal. Expensive meals aren't always the best. I mean, I've, I'll, I'll, in full disclosure, I don't think I've ever spent more than $30 for a plate of food. But I have spent $30, which, compared to what I normally spend, is, is relatively high. Occasionally, I'll, I'll treat myself on a special occasion to like a filet mignon or, or something like that at a, you know, at a decent restaurant. I've, I've never really gone beyond that. If anybody wants me to experience a $100 steak and they're willing to take me out, I'm open to that. You know, If that's your application for today's sermon, I have no problem with that. But I, I have learned... That's not always the most direct way to happiness. And the few times that I've done that, there have been times, in fact, this, this past um, Valentine's Day, Kim and I went out, went to the Walnut Grill down in Fox Chapel and I got one of those $30 filet mignons. And I've had it there before and it's, it's been delicious. And you know what happened this time? It was terrible. It was terrible. The whole experience was terrible. They were too busy um, The service was bad, the seats that we had were bad, the food came out, and it was bad, and I was like, this is more money than I spent this whole week on food, and it's the worst meal I've had yet. That's just the way it is sometimes in life. You know, some of the best meals that I've had cost far less, but were enjoyable because they were with the right people. That's an opportunity, you know, you don't have to be rich to be happy. And to enjoy good things. My mom. Uh, my mom's from Georgia. She grew up there. My whole That whole side of my family still lives down there in North Georgia. And uh, I never knew my grandfather. I met him one time. Um, my mom uh, was conceived out of an affair. And uh, she only met her dad a couple of times before he passed. And I was there for one of those when I was a young boy. But I never knew my grandfather. But I had an uncle uh, in Georgia who passed away about two years ago. Uh, who filled... That's place in my life, uh, my Uncle Jimmy. And one of my favorite things about visiting uh, my family in Georgia was my Uncle Jimmy had this secret hot wings recipe. He would make this delicious sauce, and we'd get a turkey fryer and we'd fill it with oil. And, I mean, there's nothing better than food cooked in hot oil. I recommend it highly. And we would just, you know, what, $3 a pound for chicken wings, and we'd fill that thing up and cook those chicken wings and, and, and toss them around in that sauce. And, you know, it was nothing like the walnut grill. It was far better. And we'd stand out. We'd, I mean, we'd throw all that in the back of his pickup truck, and, and you know, they're, they're pretty country there. And so we'd go down a dirt road and hang out in the middle of the field and cook chicken wings together. Some of the best meals I've ever eaten. You don't have to be rich to be happy. You don't have to be rich to enjoy good things. Enjoy what God has given you. Now, I got a couple more things to do here. So I'm gonna, gonna, let me get to the next point, which is the last point on the handout, but we're certainly not done because the perspective is not complete yet. But what I wanna do with six, I planned on talking about uh, 1 through 12 a little bit here, but let me give you the, the answers to the, the fill in there. Failure to live this way will only result in futility and tragedy. You can enjoy what God has given you or you can live in futility and tragedy. It's it's really what it comes down to. Failure to appreciate the things that you have more than longing for the things that you don't have. He says in verse nine of chapter six, you don't have to try to find this. I'm not, uh, these, the sli- forget the slides for a minute because I was gonna read all of this again and talk about it piece by piece. We don't have time for that. But in verse nine it says, better what the eye sees than wandering desire. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Better is what the eye sees, I think, is better is what you already have than what you desire and, and fantasize about having. It's better to just enjoy what you've already been given than to be consumed by the futility of pursuing after the wind, of all the things that you expect would make you happy. The tragedy in, in chapter 6, he, he, he says, let me read a couple of these verses. Verse 1, here is a tragedy I have observed under the sun and weighs heavily on humanity. God gives a person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. God gives some people everything they could ever want, but he does not allow them to enjoy it. That is a tragedy. Instead, a stranger will enjoy them. This is futile and a sickening tragedy. He says, a man can father a hundred children and live many years, and no matter how long he lives, if he is not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. That is the sickening tragedy. It would be better. It would be better that you had died in the process of being born than to be born and to live for hundreds of years and never enjoy what God has given you. That's his conclusion. I'm just telling you what he says. He says in verse six, and if a person lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. He's talking about the stillborn child. All of a person's labor is for his stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage then does the wise person have over the fool? What advantage is there for the poor person who, who knows how to con- conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than wandering desire. Do you see what he's saying here? Happiness and enjoying life isn't necessarily about riches. In fact, the opposite is true. This is something, this is so countercultural. You need to know. That the lies that you are being sold are simply that, they're lies. Marketing geniuses have convinced us that we will be happier if we just get the next new thing. If we just have enough wealth to to take the vacation that we dream of or, or to buy the new iPhone or whatever it is. And you can do those things. But understand that those aren't what will bring you happiness. It is the perspective of being able to step back and enjoy what God has given you. Then he says in verse ten of chapter six, if you can catch up to me on the slides, great. If not, no problem. I'll just read. Whatever exists was given its name long ago, and it is known for it is known what mankind is. But he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. He's going back to this idea that he's already mentioned in the book, that we are not in control of our lives, that we are better off surrendering to the God who is in control than trying to be the God of our own universe. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for mankind? He has two really important questions here. For who knows what is good for anyone in life in the few days of his feudal life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? Those two questions, that's how this passage ends. Who knows what is good for anyone in life and who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? And the answer that he wants us to come to is certainly not us. We're not in that position. We don't determine what is good in life. And we don't know what will happen after we die. And that's how he ends. And so this is one of the challenges of reading Ecclesiastes. Is Ecclesiastes, this phrase, under the sun, is, comes up again and again. And he offers the perspective of life and wisdom that is Under the sun, that's sort of this idea of a closed system where certainly God exists, but it's hard to see what happens beyond what we can see with our eyes. The Bible, the New Testament in particular, takes us beyond the perspective of under the sun and into a glorious eternity. And so I think it's important for us here to go to the New Testament for the answers to those questions who knows what is good for anyone in life? And who knows what will happen to him after the son? Well, I know one person. His name is Jesus. Jesus knows what is good for you in your life. And Jesus knows what will happen after you're dead. And so let's go to the New Testament now. And I want to read this and make a couple of comments in the last few minutes that we have here together. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. I'm gonna break this down into three sections with some comments for each section. But godliness with contentment, this is verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You see the parallel here in 1 Timothy 6 to what we're talking about in Ecclesiastes? Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. That sounds very familiar. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish human desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. Ecclesiastes 5 brutally outlines those traps and those, those, those harmful desires, the, things, the foolish things that happen to those who want to be rich and pursue money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, it's, it's been noted many times, but I want to make sure you caught this. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not money itself. Money's not bad in any of this. Money's not bad. It's the relationship between our hearts and our minds with money that becomes problematic. This is an echo of Ecclesiastes, but there's an additional and even a more serious warning here that the love of money may even lead you away from faith. Of all of the problems that can happen with money, this is by far the most serious. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What I want you to understand today is that that could happen to you. If you do not check your heart and if you do not correct the way you think about money, you may fall in love with money so much that it leads you away from faith and pierces you with many griefs. Let's go on. Verse 11 of 1 Timothy 6. But you... Okay, so that can happen, but this, this is uh, written to Timothy. But you, man of God, flee from these things. Get away from them. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no eye has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal power amen so many parallels here to ecclesiastes that's why i think when the author of ecclesiastes answers or asks these questions that he doesn't have answers to it's pointing us to the new testament ecclesiastes is preparing us this wisdom that all of which is true Everything he said in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 is absolutely true. It's just incomplete. It sets us up for and it points us to even greater truth in Jesus Christ. He says, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And he speaks, he speaks of the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings. There, again, this is such a strong theme in Ecclesiastes. There's only one who's in control, and it's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. More money may bring more problems, but Jesus brings eternal life. Cultural misconception here is that the things that we hope to gain from riches are actually found abundantly in knowing Jesus. What do we want from wealth? We want peace, we want to not worry. That's what we hope wealth will bring. It brings the opposite. Keeps you up at night. It brings uninvited friends. We want security. There is no security in wealth. You could lose it at any moment. We want satisfaction. This too is futile. You won't be satisfied by it. We want long life. You, t- you brought nothing into this world. You're not taking anything with you. All the money in the world will not affect your eternity. But all of those things we have abundantly in Jesus. We get peace. We get security. We get satisfaction. We get eternal life. The world does not know this. That's why the world is obsessed with material things and pursuing money and riches and wealth and power. But Christians have this deceptive truth in our own hands that we gain everything that they're pursuing by knowing Jesus. Let me finish the passage. Verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in the present age. By the way, that's us. Relatively speaking, you may not see yourself as rich compared to the people around you. But by all measurements and accounts, we are, everyone in this room included, are among the wealthiest people in human history, okay? So instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Man, that's life-giving. That's life-giving. Don't be arrogant. Don't set your hope on wealth but on God. Enjoy the things that he gives you. Be rich in good works. Be generous and willing to share. Store up treasures for yourselves in the age to come. Because those you get to keep forever. Everything you attain for yourself now, you let go of when you cross over from living to dead. But for believers, there's one more step. We cross over from living to really living. And what you've stored up for you by your your good works and by sharing and your generosity and by the, the way you've lived your life walking as Jesus would have you walk, those will be yours forever, forever. So, don't fall into the pitfalls and traps that the love and pursuit of money may bring. Instead, be generous, enjoy what you have, pursue having more of Jesus in your life. Let's pray. Father, these things are absolutely true. There's a war going on inside of us. A war between believing what this world continues to believe even though it's been proven wrong again and again. And on the other side of that coin, believing what you say is true, which has been proven to be true again and again and again. Nevertheless, we live in these broken bodies with minds that that always go back to wrong ways of thinking with hearts that desire the wrong things. May we learn from Ecclesiastes that the secret to happiness, the secret to satisfaction is not in more money. In fact, more money might create more problems. But the secret to what we really want to peace and security and satisfaction is found in having more Jesus. And for that very reason, you sent your son to die on the cross to pay for our sins, to suffer the death that we deserve, but to raise on the third day to give us the life that you want us to have so that we could truly live. We thank you, Father. Thank you for speaking truth into our lives today. May we take it and apply it and live it and share it. May we be generous with our lives. May we enjoy what you have given us and may we pursue every day not more riches but more Jesus for it's in his name we pray.